All right, let's open in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter number 10. I've prayed for a while about what the Lord would have me to preach on. I believe this is the mind of God for us this morning. We're going to be more of a doctrinal message. That's okay, isn't it? You go to some churches and they say, we don't preach that doctrine. I wonder what do they preach, amen? Because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, the Bible says. If you're not going to preach doctrine, you might as well just throw that Bible away. And sad to say, a lot of churches have done that in this day that we live in. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture here. Old Tom Malone used to say, when you preach, read a lot of Scripture. When you get persecuted in one verse, you can flee to another. Amen? So we're going to read a lot of Scripture this morning, but I hope that you'll bear with me. Verse number 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Don't you love how common sense the Word of God is? For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when He... Oh boy, let's just stop and read that again. When the law could not and what the law could not do in the weakness of flesh, Jesus Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh and paid for sin in the flesh. It says, wherefore, when He cometh into the world, He saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Oh, read this with me. Once for all. Don't you like that this morning? Once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever, forever, forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. Now, if you've been sitting here this morning saying, I wonder when a good time to shout would be. I just wonder when it would be a good time to just cut loose and let the Lord know how much He means to me. I believe verse 17 might be a good place to do that. Because it says, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Boy, don't you like that this morning. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, 
and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your power and presence. Lord, I thank You that You still meet with Your people. I thank, I'm thankful, Lord, that through the person of the Holy Ghost, You're active in the hearts and lives of Your children. And Lord, I'm thankful that this morning we've already felt and, and known Your presence in the midst of us. I pray, Lord, that if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, that You, through Your Word, would convict them through the power of the Holy Spirit and show them their need of Christ's salvation, that they would see themselves lost and undone. Lord, it helps not that they see others in that state, but that they'd see themselves in need of Christ's salvation. Lord, I pray that they would call upon the name of Your dear Son and be everlastingly saved by the shed blood of Christ on Calvary. I pray that if there's one amongst us that's back slidden, Lord. I pray if there's one amongst us that's running like Jonah did of old, running from Your presence and from the will of God for their lives, I pray that You'd catch them, Lord. I pray that You'd put them in a whale's belly if it's necessary, but Lord, I pray that in loving kindness, You'd show them Your power and presence in their life and show them Your will. Lord, all these things can only be accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So God, we'd ask that He would have liberty this morning to do as would see fit to the eternal mind and heart of you. Lord, we love you this morning. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to title the message this morning, Out of the Shadow and In to the Light. As you read the book of Hebrews, and you know, we could argue about who wrote it. Some people believe Paul wrote it. Some people believe Peter wrote it. Some people believe other people wrote it. I just kind of sell it by saying I believe the Holy Ghost of God wrote it. No matter who he used to write it, the Holy Ghost of God inspired the words on this page right here. And as I read the book of Hebrews, I'm very conscious that it is part of a trilogy in the Word of God. If you read the book of Romans and the book of Galatians and the book of Hebrews together, you'll find that they present to us the transition from law into grace. And I kind of like as I read in Hebrews chapter number 10, you know, it, it had to be the Apostle Paul or whoever wrote this book that started the idea of commentaries. Because whoever wrote this book, and I believe it's Paul, so I'm going to say it's Paul. Is that okay this morning? Because I'm tired of saying whoever it was that wrote it. That's a mouthful. So you'll know what I mean when I say Paul. When Paul wrote the book of Hebrews and the Holy Ghost used him to do so, uh, we find that he, he speaks of it almost like a commentary. He takes Old Testament verses and expounds upon them. And of course, all of the Word of God does that. The greatest commentary on the Word of God you'll find is the Word of God. And as he's doing this, he's very explicit as he explains these Old Testament passages. You see, it had to rock and reel in the mind of a Jewish Christian that everything they had been raised in was done away with by six hours on a cross. It had to just shake their very foundation to know that all of the things they had vested their whole open had been fulfilled in this Nazarene, in this carpenter from Galilee, in this suffering Savior. It had to be a mind-shattering truth to them. And so God in His loving kindness chose as a part of His inspired Word to reveal the truths concerning the transition from law into grace. And I just want to point out three things in these uh, 23 verses this morning. We're going to group them uh, together. And I want to say that the first thing we see is the futility of 
of the Old Testament sacrifices. And you might say, well, preacher, this doesn't have a thing in the world to do with me because I don't offer Old Testament sacrifices. No, but you mark my word, neighbor, there's a lot of people that are living in this world trusting in the sacrifices of their good works, in the sacrifices of their church membership, in the sacrifices of their baptism, in the sacrifices of the prayers of their godly parents that are trusting they'll go to heaven based upon those things. You see, the Old Testament law pictures for us very simply man's attempts to please God through his own works. The Bible says, for by the works of the law shall no flesh to be justified. The law was not given to bring men closer to God, but to show them their distance from God. The law was not given as a pathway to show men how godly they could be, but was given as a wall to show men how far from God they truly are. The book of Romans tells us that the law was given that the whole world would become guilty before God and that every mouth would be stopped, that the whole world would become guilty. The book of Galatians teaches us that the law is our schoolmaster bringing us unto Christ. What the law of God did to the Jewish heart and mind and certainly also to the Gentile heart and mind when they observed it, what is it made them keenly aware of the holiness of God. It made them aware that God was higher than they. It made them aware that God was greater than they. It made them aware that God was vaster than they. And it made them aware that there was no means through which they could please God through their own works. But you'll find many today, and it's along denominational lines, but it's not just denominational lines. You'll find that every single person that's on their way to hell this morning is getting there by their good works. It does not matter who it is. You say, well, what about the drunkard upon the street? The drunkard upon the street is not concerned about his soul because there's always someone drunker than he is. The drug addict with a needle in their arm is not concerned about their soul because there's always a junkie that's using more than they are. You see, it does not matter the scale upon which you put it. You can go from the high formal Pharisees of denominations and you can go to the low down gutters of this world and you'll find everywhere men and women that are trusting in their good works to get them to heaven. But as we read the book of Hebrews chapter 10, we're struck by the futility of this effort. The Bible says, I want you to read it with me. I'm not going to misquote it. I think we're guilty of that sometimes. Look at it with me again there in the first verse. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. And as you read the Old Testament law, understand that that's what it is. It is a shadow. It it, it is the backside of the light. Could we put it that way? It is the backside of the image. And all of the Old Testament law pictured for us the work of Jesus Christ. It says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. If you want to take a text or a theme verse for what we're going to preach on, that would be it this morning. But I want you to notice this next verse. It says, for then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. Notice the first thing Paul deals with is the impotence of good works. You know, it's just common sense. And I like how logical the Word of God is. In fact, it's so logical you have to go to school to believe it's unlogical. Somebody say amen right there. You have to go to school to believe that, that, that it's unlogical. You say, preacher, are you against school? No, I'm not against school. I, I am against people getting so educated that they forget how to tie their shoes in the morning. Amen. But, but there's nothing wrong with education. But we find in this passage how, how deeply logical it simply is. Because Paul writing says this very simply. It says, wouldn't it make sense that if the sacrifices worked, then they could have quit offering them? 
And let me ask you this this morning. How much good works is enough good works? Isn't it funny how nobody can seem to answer that question? If baptism is good concerning salvation, I believe baptism is a good thing after salvation, but I don't believe it does a thing in the world to save you. You baptize a dry sinner and he goes down into the water, he's going to come up a wet sinner, amen? That's the only thing that happens. But let's say baptism. If we believe that baptism had a salvitic element to it, had a saving element uh, to it, how many baptisms would be sufficient? Would the baptism be a sprinkling one? Would it be a spraying one? A pouring one? A dunking one? What type of baptism would suffice to wash us from our sins? Now, I believe a lot of people need to be baptized if for no other reason to get the physical dirt off of them. Amen? But it's not going to do a thing to save them from their sins. And the question could be posed, what exactly would be the good type or enough baptism? Now, you say, preacher, we're Baptists. We believe in baptism by immersion. That's very true. Uh, Baptism by immersion is a scriptural practice for those that have accepted Christ as their Savior already. It is a scriptural purpose. But the fact of the matter is, what if uh, dunking baptism wasn't enough of a good work? And we know that dunking baptism does not save anyone. But if we were trusting in it to get us to heaven, would one dunk be enough? Would two dunks be enough? Every once in a while, I kind of consider holding someone under a little bit to see if they really got saved. Amen? They come up out of that water cussing at me. I say, you need to get on that altar. I don't know that you got it, son. But the truth of the matter is, what would be enough? Let's say giving. Giving. Giving is important. Giving is a New Testament practice. I believe we ought to give as unto the Lord. God loveth a cheerful giver. But how much would be enough to pay for your sins? How much would be enough to wash you of your iniquities? How much would be enough to atone for your sins? How much would be enough? We could go along the lines of charity work. When I was in Christian school, we used to go down to the love kitchen and help them out. Well, I didn't, but but the good kids did. Amen. I, I didn't. I was part of the chess club. Part of the chess club at my school means you, you'd sit in there and talk and throw chess pieces out the window and see if anyone noticed. That was chess club at my school. And uh, some of my teachers were going, I knew that was him. I knew it was him. But, uh, you know, some of the some of the kids would go and they would help out and, and they would, you know, serve biscuits and eggs and whatever to homeless folks. How many homeless people would you have to feed to atone for your sins? You see, it's just a very simple question. How many good works would be enough good works to get a man to heaven if works was the means of salvation? The fact is, we find that good works never satisfy a person. They can do all the good works that they wish. They can be baptized 17 times. I mean, uh, they, they can they can give until they're broke and penniless, and never once will it satisfy the human's heart and soul. Only Jesus Christ can do that. So we see the impotence of these good works. But I want you to notice, secondly, the implication of these good works. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. You see, when the Old Testament priest, when the high priest would go in on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement and offer a sacrifice not only for himself but for the sins of the people, uh, there was always a remembrance in that sacrifice that they had sinned in the past year and they would sin again in the future year. And certainly when uh, men would come and present their sacrifice uh, to the priest and he would inspect it and then he would, by the way, this is a common misnomer, uh, the priests in the Old Testament, uh, the only time that they actually themselves took the 
life of the animal was on Yom Kippur. The rest of the time they inspected the animal and then gave the knife to the person and they took the life. You say, why is that significant? Because our high priest in heaven is not sacrificing for us now. The sacrifice has already been made. He doesn't have to sacrifice anymore. And so uh, when they would come and make their sacrifices, there was always this thing in the back of their mind. You know, here I put my sacrifice down. But once again, I'm going to have to sacrifice over and over and over again. There was always a remembrance. It was always implied in that sacrifice that they could not appease God. It was always implied in that sacrifice that their righteousness was not sufficient. It was always implied in that sacrifice that their good works could not get the job done. Every year they would have that remembrance made. And I would ask you this question. Isn't a man trying to please God in his good works nothing more than evidence that he knows he's insufficient in his own righteousness? When a man says, I do good things to please God, he's implying that alone he can't please God. There's a remembrance made of those things. The fact that those sacrifices were given was a testimony to the insecurity of the sacrificer. Boy, I'm thankful that I'm not trusting in my sacrifice, aren't you? I'm thankful I'm not trusting in my work, aren't you? I'm thankful that I'm not trusting in my own self-righteousness. Aren't you this morning? Because the truth of the matter is, when I look at my own good works, I'm reminded of the futility of my own good works. When I look at myself, I'm reminded I'm a sinner. Oh, you say, preacher, but you're saved. Yeah, I'm saved by grace and washed in the blood of Christ. But if you were to take all that away, and it ain't never going to be took away, glory to God, it's never going to be taken away. But if you were to take all those things away, you'd find a poor, wretched sinner deserving of hell. It's only by the blood of Christ that I'm anything. There's an implication in those sacrifices. I want you to notice a third thing. We'll move on. You say, boy, that was quick. Yeah, that's just point one. Amen. Uh, Notice number four. Uh, Verse number 4, look what it says. puts very plainly, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. I've said this before. We offended a holy God. Holy God. The blood that had to be shed on our account was not the blood of bulls and of goats. You and I are worth more to God than bulls and goats. And let me just bring it into the realm of today. Paul says it's not possible. That's not the sacrifice God was looking for to make propitiation. It made atonement. It covered, but it could not cleanse. And that's not what God was needing. We had offended a holy God. It was nothing but a band-aid fix. It did nothing but restrain the judgment hand of God and pointed forward to a future sacrifice. It was never possible. That was never what God intended was for men to trust in those sacrifices for their soul's salvation. And let me just bring it into today's realm. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. The Bible does not say the wages of sin is baptism. The Bible does not say the wages of sin is church membership. The Bible does not say the wages of sin is tithing. The Bible does not say the wages of sin is prayer. The Bible does not say the wages of sin is good works. If you're trying to get to heaven based on your own ability, you're trying to give God something He's not looking for. The wages of sin is death. 
we've offended a holy God. You say, oh, preacher, I thought that the Lord was all love and rainbows and unicorns. Yeah, you've been reading in the ecumenical movement is your problem. You've thrown the Old Testament away. You read, and by the way, do you know that God is the same in the Old Testament as He is in the New Testament? The only difference is there's a sacrifice that's eternal that's been made. That's the only difference. God must judge sin. Hear me? God must judge sin. You say, what would happen if He didn't? The whole world would unravel. Everything's based upon the character and nature of God. I'm not going to give you a theology lesson, but let me give you just a snippet. Everything is based upon the nature of God. Everything. God is the first cause. That's what the theology uh, professors say. He is the first cause. It's, it's, it's what we would call the teleological or the cosmological, excuse me, argument for God. Everything begun had to have a first cause, right? That makes sense. God is that first cause. And so everything is dependent upon the nature of that first cause. Let me tell you why up is up and down is down. Because the word by which this world was spoken into existence is settled forever in heaven. Isn't that right? How did God create this world? He said, let there be. We know that it's uh, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. But if God could lie, how could we know up is up and down is down? God said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So if God does not judge sin, how do we even know the sky is the sky and the ground is the ground? The foundation's been destroyed if God does not judge sin. The holiness of God has been offended and has not been vindicated. And everything unravels into nothingness. You say, how do you know God judges sin? I can look around at this world and see that God judges sin. And by the way, lest we get so high and mighty, the Bible says that judgment beginneth first at the house of God. We need to keep that in mind. So as we read in this passage, we see uh, the impotence of the sacrifices and the implication of the sacrifices and the impossibility. But I want you to notice there's, there's good news. <laughs> there's good. Y'all are probably getting a little depressed. You hear that thunder rumbling? I guess that's what that is. Or it's my microphone. Here I'm talking about judgment. Let me just give you a little light at the end of the tunnel. We see the futility of sacrifices, but we see the foundation of the Savior. Look at the next few verses. In fact, I'm going to read them as a whole. I'm going to read verse 4 and then verse 5 because I like this. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Boy, wouldn't it be sad if we had to stop there? Wouldn't it be a shame if we had to stop there? Wouldn't it be a shame if we saw the whole world condemned and had to stop there? God would still be God even if that happened. But wouldn't it be a sad truth? But I like how it starts in verse 5. Wherefore when He... <laughs> wherefore when He... When He... When He... When He... Are you hearing me this morning? Wherefore when He... Everybody's looking for salvation in a way, but salvation's in a person. Everybody's looking for salvation in works, but salvation's in a person. Everybody's looking for salvation by a church, but the Bible teaches it's wherefore when He cometh into the world. When He cometh into the world, look very carefully what it says. When He cometh into the world, He saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. This is a conversation between the Son and the Father. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. We see in this foundation that it's a foundation of a person. 
I'm thankful that salvation is founded in a person and not in a set of principles. Principles are good. We need principles. But the problem with principles is principles can fail you. What if you don't obey? You know how the Bible says, for what the law could not do in the weakness of flesh and sinfulness of flesh? That's talking about your flesh and mine. The law was good. It's us that were sold under sin. The law was righteous. It's you and I who couldn't keep it. Principles are a good thing, except when you can't adhere to them. Church is a good thing. I'm thankful for church. Boy, I'm thankful for our church. Let me say it publicly. If I've not said it yet, but I'm so proud. I mean, I just, you know, as a pastor, there's nothing that gets your heart a thumping and gets your, 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 your just not sinful pride, not sinful pride. Don't think that, but just makes you swell up with the blessings of God. Nothing like it other than seeing God's people praying. Boy, what a blessing Friday night was. Church is good. Church is important. But I'm thankful that salvation is not in a church. Because churches will fail you. Churches will fail you. Thankful it's not in my works. Because let me tell you something, neighbor. My works will fail him on a daily basis. But the Bible teaches very clearly that salvation is in a person. Let me say also very clearly, and I've touched on this a lot here lately, salvation is not in a historical event. You hear me? Salvation is not in a historical event. There's a lot of people that have an academic knowledge of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they really believe it. But the problem is they've never called upon a living Savior to forgive them of their sins and wash them and cleanse them. They're not putting, they're putting their trust in what happened, but they're not putting their trust in Him to save them. There's a difference. Probably part of the reason we've got so many that know the language but don't know the Savior. I'm thankful that it's vested in a person because of who that person is. He's the very immaculate Son of God. He's the one that came and that suffered. He's the one that came into the world and He knew no sin and He did no sin and in Him was no sin. I mean, do you know who I'm talking about this morning? We're not talking about Buddha this morning. You got that? We're not talking about Muhammad this morning. We're not talking about Confucius this morning. We're not talking about Pope John Paul Second this morning. We're not talking about uh, about Bishop so-and-so and Cardinal so-and-so. We're not talking about Joseph Smith this morning. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the very immaculate Son of God this morning. We're talking about the Rock of Ages this morning. We're talking about the cleft of the rock this morning. We're talking about the manna from heaven this morning. We're talking about the living waters this morning. We're talking about the rock that followed them in the wilderness this morning. We're talking about the pillar of a cloud by day and fire by night. We're talking about the serpent on a brazen stick. We're talking about Him that is altogether lovely. We're talking about Him who loved us and died for us and gave Himself for us and washes us in His blood this morning. That's who we're talking about this morning. It's in Him that salvation is found. Not in a church. I don't care, neighbor, if it's independent, fundamental, premillennial, King James only, uh, Bible-believing, Baptist church, salvation is not through the church this morning. Salvation is through the person of Jesus Christ. We see the person, but we see the propitiation. He said, Lo, I come to do Thy will, O God. He laid down His life. Read it carefully with me. And see what the Word of God says. Look at number 8. It says above when He said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said He, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that He may establish the second. 
by the which will we are sanctified. Now notice this. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He's not on the cross this morning. He's not on the cross. He doesn't have to die again for you. He's already paid the price. You see, when He paid the price, He paid it in full. Nobody else could do that. You see, if you wanted me to pay for your sins, I might could pay for the sins that you've committed here recently and you can remember. Now, I understand I really couldn't, but you stay with my train of thought. If I was to try to pay for your sins and die for your sins, I, I, I might could have even paid for the sins if you had a record of them that you'd kept, of things you'd done in your, in your past. But I'll tell you something that no man can do. No man can try to pay for the sins that you're going to commit. You see, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the Alpha. Oh, my neighbor, and He is the Omega. He's His, the beginning from the end, and the end from the beginning. I don't know if I can explain this to you. It's probably the, uh, along with the Trinity, this is probably the greatest theological principle that has wrapped the minds of, of Bible scholars throughout all time. But only one time in the Word of God is the word eternity found. I know you're sitting there going, wait a minute, some of you are checking your concordances right now. I know you are. Because you're saying, no, eternity is found more than once. No one time in the book of Isaiah is the word eternity found. Only one time. Eternal is found many times and everlasting and so on and so forth. But eternity is found one time in the book of Isaiah. Do you know why that is? Because we can, we can understand eternal because we see it as future tense. We can understand everlasting because we consider it to be future tense. Uh, we consider, we can understand from everlasting to everlasting because we can look down that linear mindset and we can perceive the past and we can perceive the future and we can understand that God's always been and He always will be. But the book of Isaiah tells us that the Lord God inhabiteth eternity. Now how can the Lord God inhabit a time concept? Eternity is not everlasting past, everlasting future. But eternity is the concept of time in its entirety. And, and by the way, time is not 24 hours in a day. It's not 60 minutes in an hour. Uh, uh, it's, it's not 60 seconds in a minute. No, time is the concept that we cannot go forward or backwards. We're stuck in the immediate. But the Bible says that, that the Lord God inhabiteth eternity. And that tells me this. It's been said like this uh, before, and, and I think my father-in-law shared this with me one time. It's stuck with me. That, that, that everything, everywhere, at every moment is in the immediate presence of God. Whoa, now think about that, neighbor. That tells me something. tells me a lot. But I'm going to tell you what it tells me right now. It tells me that there's never a sin that you're going to commit that he didn't already know about. It tells me there's never been a sin that you've hid from the almighty eyes of God. It tells me there's never been a wicked thought that you might be having in the present that God is not aware of. It tells me that when God bought you, He bought you lock, stock, and barrel because He knew what you were. That's what it tells me. He knew your worst. He knew your best. And your best was worse than His worst. It was just filthy rags to Him. He knew what He was getting into, neighbor. He knew you when He bought you. He had done the 24-point inspection. He had seen every bit of you. And He knew that and He loved you anyway. Man, I'm in deep waters now. (laughs) 
I don't even know. I'm, is it anybody else's feet getting wet? That's deep, deep waters. He knew us and He loved us. Neighbor, most of the people we know, if they really knew us, our spouses included, if they really knew us, they wouldn't love us. But He knew us and He loved us. That's a, world, that, that's a love that's alien to this world. What do you think it means when the Bible says that, uh, that uh, for, for a good man, some would even dare to die? For a righteous man, peradventure, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us. And we always see the love in that verse. And that's good. That's important. But I want you to pay attention to this next phrase. In that while we were yet sinners, the enemies of God, aliens from God, contrary to God, at enmity with God, when that's who we were, God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see the propitiation, but we see the power of it. For every high priest standeth daily and ministereth, giving oftentimes the same sacrifices for sin. But this man, when he once offered himself for sin, the Bible says he sat down at the right hand of the fall, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. That's the kind of foundation you've got if you've got Christ as your Savior. You've got a foundation nobody can undo. You know how confident God is in the shed blood of Christ? He's confident enough just to sit back. Just to sit back. God, Christ is confident enough in the shed blood of Himself that He left this earth. You say, why did He leave? Because His work was done. The work that He had to be here bodily to do was done. He had paid the price. He had shed the blood. He had presented it before God. It was accepted before the Father. The price was paid. And He said, I ascend and go back to my Father. We see that it was done. It was settled. I want to give you one one last thought and then I'm going to hush. We, We see the futility of the sacrifices. We see the foundation of the Savior. But look at verse number 15. It says, where of the Holy Ghost? We see the fellowship of the Spirit. That's where we have our fellowship, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God the Father and God the Son. Uh, you, you know what we see here? We see the Father in this passage because it says, Wherefore, when He cometh into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. We, we see God as the eternal will of the Godhead. We see God as the eternal consciousness of of, of the Godhead, God the Father. He's present. We see the Son in the sacrifice that was paid for our sins. But now the Bible says, Wherefore, whereof the Holy Ghost also signifieth unto us and witnesseth. I like that. He's a witness. I, I had on, on Friday, Miss Ina wanted to, to do have her, her will signed out and everything. So me and Mike came over and, and, and we witnessed it. We witnessed it. You know what that means? That's us testifying that we were there when it happened. And we know that it took place. The Bible says the Spirit itself also beareth witness with us that we are the sons of God. You say, what if I don't remember? I thought about this. Miss Betty said, I don't know when it was, but I know it happened. I thought about that. Oh, Miss Betty, it don't matter if you don't know because He was there. 
Just so long as you know there was a time when you called on His name. You say, I don't remember the day. That's okay. God recorded it in heaven. You say, I don't know what sermon was being preached. That's alright. It probably wasn't that good anyway. You say, I don't remember who the preacher was. That's alright. He's probably done run off with the piano player by now anyway. But I'm thankful it's not settled upon any of those things. I'm thankful that the Holy Ghost of God was there and He witnessed it and He saw it and He sealed us under the day of redemption. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? He signified. He witnessed. He saw these things. But it's not just talking about witnessing in that sense. But it's talking about the Holy Ghost uh, being bearing witness to the transition that would take place. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. That's the indwelling of the Holy Ghost of God, applying and illuminating our minds to the Scriptures, making us aware of what God expects of us in our life. But I like what the Holy Ghost said here, don't you? And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. It don't get no better than that, does it? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know what to say at this point. I, I mean, I you know, I quit running out of stuff. I, I ran out of stuff to say six points ago. I don't even know what to say here other than just to read it and breathe it in. And their sins, their iniquities, will I remember no more. You see, at the first part of this chapter, we see that in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance made again every year of their sins. You find the perpetual consciousness of their sins at the beginning of this passage. Every time they took that little lamb and took the knife and ran the knife across its neck and spilt the blood and it was applied upon the mercy seat there upon the Ark of the Covenant. Every time that that happened, it was a reminder that we're sinful, we're sinful, we're sinful, we're sinful. But now there's no more sacrifices. There's been one and it paid it all. It paid it all. John knew what he was talking about. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away. He didn't say He's going to cover it. He didn't say He's going to put a band-aid on it. He, he didn't say He'll do His part if you'll do yours. He didn't say, I'll tell you what, you, you trust Me, I'll save you by grace, but then you've got to get the rest of the way there by works. Some of our church of God brethren know what I'm talking about when I say that. He didn't say, I'll make the down payment, but you've got to pay the installments. Wherefore, when He cometh into the world, <laughs> behold the Lamb of God, what did He come to do? Which taketh away the sin of the world. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our iniquities from us. You'll never find that, Ralph. You'll never find it. You go as far east as you can, you'll never find west. You go as far west as you can, you'll never find east. And you say, well, what if that's gotten not good enough? Well, he said he would cast them behind his back. He looked on your sin once and saw the judgment of God meted out upon his son at Calvary. He'll look at them no more. He'll look at them no more. You say, well, preacher, what if that's just not good enough? Or what if God decides to turn around? Well, God said that He's taken our iniquities and He has cast them into the depths of the sea. 
You say, oh, but preacher, that's not that big of a deal to, to God because, you know, He meted out the, the oceans in the, in the palm and the hollow of His hand, the book of Job tells. And that's true. That's true. He's done that. But God said, you know, I want you to quit worrying about this. So we get over into the book of Revelation and we start reading about that new heaven and that new earth. And you see a lot of things in that new heaven. You see a lot of things in that new earth. You find a shimmering city of gold. You find street of gold. You find pearls, uh, uh, gates made of pearls. You find a twelve stone foundation of the city. You find a throne in the midst that the Lamb of God sits upon. You find that there's no sun there because the Lamb is the light of the day. You find the tree of life blooming on either side of the river of living water and giving forth its fruit each and every month. Each and every month. Each and every month. We don't have to wait on it then to be fed. Each and every month. You find a lot of things in that city. You'll find a handful of things, aren't there? You'll find there's no liars or adulterers or idolaters. You'll find there's no murderers or thieves. You'll find there's no war there. You'll find there's no pain there. You'll find that there's no sorrow. There's no death. There's no parting there. You'll find that there's no sun there because there's no need for it because the Lamb is the light of that city. But there's something else you're not going to find there. You know what God did? He took that old dirty, filthy sea that He had cast our sins into and the Bible says there was no more sea. God just did away with every bit of it. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Only the blood of Christ could do such a thing. Your filthy, rotten rags of good works could not do that. Your church that fails you and that's flawed could not do that. Your baptism could not do that. There's nothing that you could do that could do that. There's no religious figure that could do that. There's no preacher that could do that for you. But the incarnate Son of God that paid the price on Calvary did that for you and did that for me. That's my foundation this morning. That's what I'm trusting in. What are you trusting in this morning? 